0: Back in college, uh, there was a, in class, we had to do this exercise where um, we had to answer this question. What is something you'd want someone to whisper to you? And my reply was, I'd like someone to whisper to me that everything is going to be okay. So now I I think about, you know, where the trout you know, where I've been and my perspective on human behavior. And, you know, for some reason, we're, we're truly convinced that if we criticize ourselves, the criticism will lead to change. And if we're harsh, we believe we'll end up being kind. If we shame ourselves, we believe we end up loving ourselves. I don't think that's ever been true, that for a moment that shame leads to love. Only love leads to love.
1: Only love leads to love.
0: Um, You know, now I, I find myself in tougher situations than before in my life, but I'm much more prepared now. And I realize that maybe I won't hear someone tell me that everything is going to be okay. Maybe now I can be the person to whisper that to someone else. And I've learned you, uh, the power of, of empathy in my life. And I've learned how when you understand that we're all connected, that that's such a beautiful thing. Um, you know, my guest today is Matt Golden. Uh, Matt is an accomplished New York Theater actor, he's a writer, and for many years he was the uh, <laughs> he was the beloved mascot of the New York Mets. That's right, Mr. Met. Uh, in this talk, we get into his time as uh, Mr. Met, working on uh, or working with Donald Trump on, on a commercial, uh, which is pretty hilarious. Um, we talk about acting and we segue into empathy. It's a great conversation. And um, you know what's funny is the whole premise of, of of the show that the reason why I wanted to invite uh, Matt on was kind of a a, a kind of a, a side conversation that he and I had before about romance in New York, and, and we didn't even get into it. you know I just so Matt, if you're listening, uh, I'd love to do it again, and you know we'll go down a couple different rabbit holes. Um, Again, uh, thank you for listening, as you always do every week. Uh, If you're new to the show, you know, The Curious World is about uh, truthful conversation and wherever it goes. And if you're listening for the first time, you've picked a great one to listen to. I really like this one. Uh, Without further delay, Matt Gold.
2: Let me just give you a little like introduction into it. Is that um, I'm actually been working on a memoir about that subject. So I've been uh, the last probably about two years been really refining the stories and just kind of like figuring out the way that I wanted to share my journey, just as kind of like a normal guy who's a sports fan, who's an actor, who's sort of like navigating his way through life in New York in wherever, and uh, kind of got sidetracked for 13 years <laughs> with this like bizarre. Um, incredible job that I ended up with that became my life. Um, So I've been working on, I knew when when I left it that there was that that wasn't the end of that experience for me. I didn't know what it was going to be and as an artist you know I was I started writing a screenplay about a character that was similar to me having these kind of experiences but then when I was writing the screenplay it just sort of was like wait You can't, this guy's like not behaving in any way that you don't behave and he's (laughs) like the experiences he's having are exactly the ones you're having and I was having trouble writing other characters and everything. So I said, you know what, maybe just start writing your stories just to kind of get them out there and see where they can go. And I started doing that and once I kind of honed in on it, took some writing classes and started workshopping pieces here and there and then as time went on it just, it started taking shape in, in the form of a memoir. And, uh, you know, it's, it's based in my life with the Mets based in my experience there, but, um, it certainly goes off on tangents and it's just about living. And like I said, just a guy navigating his life, but having these sort of surreal experiences, but that were very kind of real. Well, I God, I have so many questions. I yeah. imagine
0: it's such so bizarre to go from that environment of, you know, major league baseball to, you know, doing like a doing like a stage reading yeah. you know, like in, in Manhattan or something? Yeah,
2: well, you know, my background is acting, right? I grew up uh, performing all the time. Plays, commercials, musicals, everything. Kind of kind of ran the gamut. Went to college and studied theater, musical theater specifically, but also drama and acting and all of that. And then got out of college and uh, looking for auditions and everything. So my background is, is acting, is performing, is right. being on stage, being on film, all that stuff. Um, and then... But life takes you to interesting places that you don't necessarily foresee. And, uh, yeah, it's just sort of kind of weaving your way and, and, and finding it out and sort of being open to whatever the next thing that presents itself or that you kind of put yourself in a space to, to you know, take part in. And that's. that's but I guess it,
0: it must have helped that you were a fan of the Mets.
2: I don't think I could have done the job that <laughs> I did for 13 years without being a diehard Mets fan. I grew up on Long Island, so... I come by it very honestly. I uh, yeah. I, I in nineteen eighty six. I, uh, I, I, I know, <laughs> Red Sox fan. <laughs> Yeah, but you guys have done okay since then. I know, I know. We actually haven't done okay since then. <laughs> well, you did great last year. Yeah, but, but the goal is the World Series <laughs> ring. And, uh, you know, we haven't. So, 86 was the last <laughs> time the Mets actually Remember, like, played. last
0: season, you opened up the, 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 the season, like, on such a tear. I was yeah. Like, wow. Yeah, they won, like, 11 in a row yeah. in April, I think. And, and then, just, like, everybody started getting injured.
2: Yeah, and then things happen. Baseball's a marathon, right? And then, uh, at the All Star break, all that drum, there was that one week. I know they've actually done a TV show about it uh, like on SNY Um, just this one week of like change where the guys were traded but weren't traded then they brought in some they made some trades signed some some guys and then all of a sudden uh, starting at the trade deadline through the end of last season everything went right and if you're a Mets fan, that never happens. Like all the <laughs> yeah, guys, you usually get like a, you sign somebody, like a like you get like you get like Benilla a Yeah, a classic example. Who's, like still, Who still, who's yeah. still getting paid? Yeah, for the next twenty years or so. Um, yeah, so so it's rare for a Mets fan that everything kind of goes right. And last year, from the trade deadline through uh, pretty much the World Series, everything just broke right for that team, and it was unexpected. I think this rebuilding plan that they've had was eventually supposed to come to fruition, but not last year. It wasn't supposed to happen that quickly. And it just did. And all of a sudden there was like this this wave of excitement that, that was happening out in Flushing. Um, of course, you know, when things happen before they're supposed to, I guess that's when Kansas City stepped in and they were like, hey, wait, we, we have a story too, <laughs> yeah. you know? And all of a sudden um, they kind of finished their destiny from the year before where they lost the World Series. Uh, and, and beat us pretty handedly, I guess, in the actual series. Did, did you ever work in Shea or is it always... I did. I right? worked in Shea from 99 until 2008 when it closed. Oh,
0: so, so. You, you were part of the, uh, the World Series here? Right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was there in the Subway Series in 2000. I was there in uh, 2006 when they were pretty much the dominant team in the National League and then lost in dramatic fashion in the NLCS that year. Um, and that also been a part of all the... <laughs> did, did you travel? Um, or was it was always
0: at home. I did
2: all the home games, and then I would do certain events on the road. But generally, when the team was a, a, a away uh, on a road trip, I would be in New York doing events in the tri-state area. So, uh, you know, weddings and bar mitzvahs on Long wow. Island, or, like, you know, marketing appearances in Manhattan, or backyard barbecues in Connecticut, kind of anything you can imagine. Are you allowed to speak? Um, in the costume? Yeah. No,
0: No. events. Okay. So if a day. kid comes up to you and says, like, you just have to like, you have to like gesture your,
2: and yeah. yeah, it's, and I always had an assistant with me who would sort of hopefully answer questions or deflect any, you know, wayward arms that were coming towards me. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's all, it's all your body and your sort and it's funny trying to find subtlety in this costume. That's gigantic. Um, which is a, with a big hamburger helper, exactly. Yeah, four fingered white gloves. Yeah, white gloves. Um, yeah, so you have to kind of. in my sense of humor is more of a subtle, kind of sarcastic thing, which doesn't necessarily play in a costume. So it was finding that balance of broad comedy, but also hoping to find a little bit of subtlety and nuance within that.
0: Did you get uh,
2: close to any of the
0: players or stuff? Oh yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, I would do I, at the field at the stadium every day. I would you know interact with them on a limited basis, um, and then. I would do special events with them, hospital visits and school visits and things like that. So, so I had some in, mostly in costume, but sometimes behind the scenes, you know, we'd kind of chat for a little bit. And, you know, some of them really could care less about the guy <laughs> in the costume and some of them were actually very friendly to me. It just kind of What didn't... about uh, baskets from other teams? I knew all of the guys from all the baseball teams, each year we would get together at the All-Star Game uh, and the, the MLB would fly us into whatever city the game was being held in and uh, we would take part in all the festivities leading up to the game, do all, you know, in costume do all the events uh, and then they would actually get us tickets to actually watch the game and watch the Home Run Derby and go to the galas. So it was a ton of work in this kind of long weekend of festivity but but then we were able to enjoy it a little bit, too. So, yeah, I know all the guys um, from the, I guess there are 30 teams in baseball, and at the time I was doing it, 26 uh, had mascots. So, during the season, you never actually got to see... Like a Mets game as a fan. I never watched a home game. I, I would I would have to monitor the game. So whenever I was taking breaks in my room, I would have a TV and, you know, sort of know how many outs there were to go, know where I needed to be at the next inning break, and time it that way. But as far as just sitting in the stands at Shea Stadium or at City Field watching a home game, I I didn't do that until I left the job.
0: Wow. Yeah.
2: But I grew up doing that. So it was a weird thing to kind of go back to that when, when I had decided to leave uh, the first year after I left to sort of, it was many emotions, mixed emotions, but harkening back to, like, the time when I was a kid where I could just sit in the stands, watch a game, not have to worry about where I had to be, you know, just enjoy baseball. Of course, now my mind is racing, watching this game, because I'm thinking, well, all right, well, he has to be over there now, and here he's, how is he going to get from this place? Well, to- and, and I have to do something Yeah, I, I felt this, like, tremendous responsibility to, like, make sure everything happened, and then I'd have to keep reminding myself, wait, that's not you anymore. You don't have to do that anymore. So, how'
0: would you have that balance because you you're, you're' you're an actor at the time how did you I would imagine that you don't have a lot of intersecting conversations or maybe
2: you did what do you mean uh, as far as like those are from... completely different worlds right
0: like i I'm a sports fan too so right. I, I it would be rare that I would talk about sports
2: like you know when I was doing theater yeah and vice versa so the balance between the the sports yeah. fan and me and the performer and yeah, yeah yeah um well, it was interesting because doing this job was an aspect of performance, not necessarily the one that I had studied and the one that I desired to, to, to take part in, but there's definitely a performer. there's a huge performance aspect to it, you know, uh, so, but then I would kind of, so at, when it was baseball time and when I was at the stadium, most of the talk was about statistics and about the pennant race and about, you know, guys' batting averages and things like that. But then, I also had this desire for the other part, which is a huge part of me, if not the hugest part of me, was, you know, discussing theater and watching plays and, and getting into characters and things like that, and it was it was put aside a little bit when I was doing the job. I would do enough readings and things that kind of kept me active and kind of keeping a, a, a foot in the pool, as it were, for a while, um, so it was never completely gone, and if, if I went on a commercial audition and booked a commercial, I could kind of miss a, a, a Mets gig and go and do that commercial for a day. But I ended up turning down a lot of jobs that were available to me in the theater world because I had this steady gig going, which kind of tore me a little bit, you know, because here it is. It's your passion versus the thing that's making you money. Right, the, the, well, the, the golden man. handcuffs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And my last name is Golden, so it's... <laughs> yeah, <weird. that's> <laughs> um it's so perfect. Con- there's this kind of constant push and pull of like, what do I want to be doing versus what am I doing? Right. Um, and a lot of times I, I stifled the, the impulse for acting and I would watch my friends doing plays and things and I would still have that burning inside of me. But the sensible side of me is like, no, make money, keep doing this weird thing that you're doing. And it was, it was difficult. Um, sometimes it was great and sometimes it was awful. And it was just sort of weighing those two things until finally, after a number of years, I, I finally had to kind of do this deep inward search and say like, all right, why why are you here? What are you doing? What do you want to do with your your life, with yourself, with your time? And uh, eventually it it was the only way that I can kind of be true to what I wanted to do was to leave the other thing aside entirely, to give it up and to, you know, jump into the deep end um, of life and and pursue this, uh, you know, uh, artistic career that has no definite kind of uh, <laughs> there's no stability no, no you know you don't know what you're doing the next day right. so
0: what, what was, was there like a, a lightning bolt what was the catalyst that made you kind of say you know what I, I'm gonna I have to go for it
2: um, it wasn't a lightning bolt at all it was just sort of a steady uh, an ongoing you um, <laughs> I guess uh, the, the, the burning, the desire to kind of do the thing that I wanted to be doing, the thing that fulfilled me, eventually got too big to, to stifle. Um, which is, it sounds so, uh, I don't know, <laughs> it sounds like it's so otherworldly in a way. But um, I guess you do the, you do the thing and, and I, I, I'm passionate about everything I do. So if I'm going to go ahead and do something, whether it's a job or a role, I give my everything to it. And when you kind of feel yourself not giving your everything to it or, or maybe a little bit less than what your standard would be, you know that it's maybe a time for a change. So I would say the last two years that I was with the Mets, um, it started to feel a little bit more like a job. Uh, it, it was still fulfilling in some ways, but I started to feel more like I was stuck in it in a way. Um, I could leave at any time, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that they were holding me back or, were but, you contracted? No, or? I was never. It was just kind of a year by year thing. Oh. And they, I suppose, liked the way that I did it enough that I just kept coming back. And I had a good relationship with the people there. And they knew how much I cared about it. Like I said, I, I put my whole everything into it enough that I'm, you know, writing about it from, from the soul. And uh, I guess when you start to feel that that's no longer, the, the, you lose a little bit of that passion. And then I'm missing the other part of me that, I, that I'm constantly, that, the place that I want to go. I guess eventually that started winning out and the sensible side of me is like no stay make money keep doing all these you get to travel a little bit you get to see a lot of baseball and that was incredible but you know your heart is something sometimes you have to follow even if there's no logic to it Um, yeah it's funny my uh
0: it reminds me my uh friend for for the longest time he was part of the blue man group and I was just like and I remember he uh, I remember when he, you know, he came to New York and he went to, he went to Yale and, you know, I saw him like he, and he auditioned for Blue Man Group and he got it and then I would, you know, months would go by. I went like and then I, you know, I was watching like a Knicks game mm-hmm. and I was like I'm pretty sure that's you know, that's that's, that's Gideon. Yeah. And like so then like I ran to him and was like, dude like I think, were you, he's like, yeah that was me and he was like and he just got, we were so
2: bummed. He yeah. was like, dude, it's a lot of, it's a shitload of money, yeah. but like nobody knows who I am. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anonymity. <laughs> and, and as actors, like our whole thing is we need people to know our name, know our face. Yeah. That's how your career goes. And here I am doing this job where the bigger the character would become, the more I'm hiding behind it and the less I can talk about myself. Um, and eventually, I guess narcissism wins it. <laughs> no, it's beyond narcissism. It's just. Did it come
0: to a point where like you you didn't have any butterflies? You're like doing it by rote. And you're the like costume you're talking about?
2: Just yeah, the mascot work. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say by rote because every every event that I went to was slightly different. Yeah, I'd done a million weddings and I had done a million bar mitzvahs and I'd done a million baseball games, but the fans are different at each one. The, you right. Know, so so there's this variable of people um, and, and, you know, place. I, I I may have done something at this location, but I never did it at this one. So there was always right. some yeah. kind of newness to it. And baseball, if you're a baseball fan, you know, non-fans think it's boring because it's just this long slow. But every pitch is drama and every game is drama. And even in the, the, the crappy seasons where, you know, there's a little bit less drama and you're kind of seeing the summer through, I don't know. You still have to keep that kind of... Excitement, because that's your job, you know, and that's also. So, so it didn't ever become mundane, but it became regular. If that makes any sense, right?
0: Like, you know, kind of like, okay, this is what I do. Yeah, kind like every like, seventh inning like stretch,
2: a, I'm gonna go on the field and I'm gonna conduct. Take me out to the ball game. I'm gonna do it the way that I do it. But maybe there's like a little bit difference today because I'm feeling a certain way or I'm more excited right. I'll Just put, like I'll, I'll put a, or, Yeah, you know, okay, like whatever yeah. it happens to be. So you're always. Like an actor who does a, a show for three years, you have to find something new every single time. So I was able to do that. Um, but I guess, I don't know, it's, it's, you just, it, it, any, even if you, if you've done a show for three years, you do have to find something and sometimes it becomes harder and harder to find that thing. Right. So while I was able to find a little bit of something and I was able to kind of see past my own, <laughs> um, Wait, i I've always, so, so one of the
0: gigs that I had when I when I when I first came to New York and it was like a like a one day thing like I dressed up as a like a grape and I sold <laughs> that and I like gave away I don't know what we were doing yeah. uh, I don't think I gave anything it was like a promotional thing right. anyway that thing that place, that thing that, that costume was hot as shit yeah. and I had like this like grape like there was like a cage yeah. but nobody could see me but like and I could barely see anything right. and I just remember like it it was a lot
2: um i felt like a robot <laughs> so how was it like logistically to move around uh well the head is really really heavy so there's you know, all the weight is on your neck um so it's like a helmet inside that holds the whole thing up, but all the weight is being held by your neck. So my neck and my trapezius muscles just—oh, because, really, because it's they, not resting on my shoulders uh, at all, Mr. Matt, because he has such a big head. <laughs> yeah. Right? It, you know. So you know, you try to keep it as realistic as possible, and if you need to shake your head, you shake your head. But all that weight is going with you, so it becomes it becomes a, a burden <laughs> in more ways than one. Um, the body is free enough. You have padding on, but it's free enough that you can move like a human being. But everything's bigger and you want to gesture bigger, more like a, a, a living cartoon character. But it is limited because the head is just so big. Did, now, what did the Yankees do? As far as like the seventh inning stretch, or uh, it, they play "God Bless America" the seventh inning stretch. I don't want to get into like patriotism <laughs> and all that. They don't have a mascot. So That's they, what they, I didn't think they did. Yeah, yeah they, they just they did briefly in the late '70s, early '80s. They had um, they had this by the same company that designed the Philly Fanatic. They had this like Muppet-like creature. And he lasted not very long because I think the fans were so used to just being a good team and not needing a mascot, and <laughs> not needing frivolity. But he, eventually he was like, he, he he was only allowed in the upper tier of, the, of Yankee Stadium, and I think the fans were really abusive with him. So this well, is like that's the where they put the nicest fans. On yeah. The upper <laughs> t- um, so this is like in 1981, and that, like when when Muppets and mascots, and that was like sort of a huge thing, I guess, in our in our bizarre culture. <laughs> And uh, they tried it, and it just it didn't it didn't work. And ever since then, they've not had a mascot. Mm, wow. Have <laughs> um, you ever been? To, have you been to the New Yankee Stadium? I've actually only seen a game there one time, and it was a couple of years ago. And it, it's such a I love baseball stadiums. I, I like. I always think. I think I heard it somewhere and then I've sort of made it into my own thing is that every time you take off in an airplane and you look down, you just see like in America yes. just dotted with baseball fields. And they are like these jewels, like the color yeah, the, color, the, look, the, the, the grass diamonds and the... the it's yep. just, I just, I love seeing baseball stadiums from afar, you know, up in the sky. And then just, I, I, I love any kind of stadium really, but especially baseball stadiums. So I love to go to games even if my team is not involved. I had an opportunity to go to a Yankee game a few years ago. and It was my first time in the new Yankee Stadium. I had been to the old one a bunch of times. And this is coming from a Mets fan, so of course I'm, I'm very biased. It was like a cool new stadium with all the amenities and all that. It just... It didn't have the charm of a lot of other stadiums. Yeah, it feels else. like a shopping mall. Yeah, and it's it doesn't different. And it doesn't have the history of the old Yankee Stadium. So well, they kind of try to make it like do, it. They do, but it's a new stadium. Yeah. So it's not Fenway, it's not Wrigley, you know, and for that matter, it's not even the old Yankee Stadium, which to me, when they refurbished it in the 70s, like it didn't have that feeling of an old stadium. But at least you knew Babe Ruth played in that very spot, you know, and Lou Gehrig and all the greats. <laughs> The new Yankee Stadium, I don't know. Like it's it's a little <laughs> bit it's across the street. It just didn't have that same. Yeah. It didn't have that same. Well, you feel can get like me. a thirty dollar hot dog there. or Yeah, something. yeah, yeah. It sort of loses something, but it's it's their place and they go there and they honor their team and they still have their monuments and they still have the freezer on the outside and you know it's 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 sort of the the new version of that kind of classical thing, I guess. But nothing is like. Fenway, Nothing is like Wrigley, and nothing is like all the, the old school, you know, the ones that... And those are really the only two left. I guess Dodger Stadium is the next one in that list, but... Oh, yeah. Huh. And that's a long time after that. So, yeah, those two stadiums stand apart. And I know they've remodeled them through the years, but uh, they still have that, that quaint feeling, that kind of old-timey baseball thing. So, yeah, nothing's like that. <laughs> but do you like Citi Field? I do. Um, I... You know, having worked there, I kind of knew all the ins and outs of it. But like going from Shea Stadium, which I loved, but I only loved it the, because the oh yeah, we didn't have that at Shea. That was like a vet vet stadium thing. I mean, they had it at other stadiums, but no. The, the really? I remember having like going to the troth
0: at Shea Stadium.
2: Not at Shea. No, they had they had full fledged urinals at Shea. Were, yeah, but it but it. I loved Shea because of what it represented, not because of what the building was. You know, when it was first built in the 60s, it was this state-of-the-art new stadium. It was one of the first multi-purpose stadiums that, you know, the Jets played there, the Mets played there, the the, uh, field level moved to accommodate whatever sport, and then eventually they solidified it. But I grew up watching games there, and that's where I learned baseball. That's where I learned to be a Mets fan. That's where I smelled hot dogs Mm -hmm. and the dirty water, and that's where I smelled, you know, drank RC Cole and all that stuff. (laughs) And then when I started working there... Did they have Mr. Met back then? He was around in the 60s, and then he was around for part of the 70s, and then went away. So for my... I was born in the mid to late 70s. So what for, about the
0: Apple? Did they have that?
2: The Apple came around in the early 80s, I believe. So for my whole childhood, there was no Mr. Met, but there was an Apple. Um, and just going to games, like, that was what baseball was. You know, we we lived on Long Island. It was about... 45 to 50 minute ride to Shea and I just we'd listen to the pregame on the radio and like get all that You know excitement and then walk in and see those bright colors And the stadium had you know the orange of the field level and the You know each level had a different bright color to it um, And that was there was nothing else like that and then when I started working there, I still Remembered that and I still hearkened back to that feeling Um, but the stadium was decrepit by that point, like, like pipes are leaking this like sludgy kind of liquid (laughs) that you can't identify. And, you know, it was a very different thing. So I loved it for what it represented in my childhood and watching baseball and seeing some of the greatest moments of my life. But the stadium itself was kind of needed, we needed a new one. And that's when City Field came along. And it took a little while to kind of get, it's state-of-the-art, and the amenities were so much better. The food was incredible. But watching a game there, it didn't yet, when I was working there, yet feel like a Met stadium because it didn't have the history. Right. So while yeah. Shea was falling apart and City was brand new and shiny and awesome to watch a game, it didn't have the history. So I feel like the fans, you can't just build that. You know, You have to have some winning seasons. You have to have some moments that happen for it to feel like home. And I guess as the years have gone on, I think the first one... <laughs> A lot of people say the first time it felt like a Met stadium was when uh, Johan Santana pitched his no-hitter, which was the year that I had left. So I wasn't even there. I was there for like three really crappy years. Well, you killed them though. I know. <laughs> so, and then of course, last year with the World Series run, all of a sudden it's blue and orange and, you know, it becomes a, like fans go there and they feel like it's their home field. But it takes a while for that to happen. So I love Citi Field for what it was and all the amenities and the differences it had from Shea. but. Uh, I don't think it when I was there it didn't quite feel it didn't have that same nostalgia It didn't have the, the memories that Shea held Have you seen baseball in other countries? Uh, I've seen baseball in Japan Me too. I think, what
0: was that like for you?
2: It's this was back in 2000. So this is a number of years ago, but it was it was so different but the passion was i guess the passion was equal to what it is in america but it was manifested in such a different way you know watching sections now i guess they, they had the the noisemakers that they would bang and and, and like the fans had chance that it was i guess now in in some ways uh our baseball culture sort of has it ad, has adopted some of their things i think with the you know when they gave out noisemakers as like a door prize um but there was just a different feeling to it, but, but the same kind of passion. So I, I, it was more of an organized passion, let me say that, yeah. whereas like, in America- It's a go- almost like a, like a kind of like a rowdy tennis match. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. There was like, like, it was, fans there are rabid, right? And they care for their teams as much as American fans care for our teams, but I guess I just felt that it was so much more organized. The way, the cheers were all planned out, and the way you cheer mm-hmm. is, that's what it seemed to me. Um, but, but no less passion there, which I found to be really exciting. And also, driving in the streets outside of the cities, you would see kids playing baseball on Little League fields, which I was yeah. like, oh, that's so cool. Because we I, we only see from our perspective. Like I was talking about, you fly over America in a plane and you see all the baseball fields. And you just, because it's America's pastime, you just don't picture that in other places. So when I actually saw it in another place, it felt good. It felt like, hey, look at us. We're like... There's such a huge cultural divide, but this is definitely something that we can share. which is, which is what, really uh, So what did you think of Japan? I was really only in Tokyo um, and maybe a couple of towns outside of it, because it was through the Mets that I was there. Oh, I was doing okay. a, a, a trip with Major League Baseball and with the Mets. Um, the city itself, being a New Yorker and feeling comfortable and confident in New York City, going to Tokyo, I think I had, I had that knowledge with me, so I wasn't intimidated by a big city like that. But the efficiency with which it was run was <laughs> so vastly different from, um, from how New York is. And yeah. just the subway system. I, I, when I wasn't working, I had all this downtime to kind of navigate the city on my own and just figure things out. And not speaking any of the language, but being able to get by was a pretty cool thing. What month was that? Uh, I was there, I guess it was the end of March, beginning of April. Oh, okay. So it was right so at the so beginning like, of the baseball season. So, okay. So,
0: like, weather wise, it was fine.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was like spring was just starting. It wasn't quite cherry blossom season, I guess, but it was like getting there. So the weather was it was still chilly but not cold. Um, a lot of people were out. You know, it, it was the combination, I guess, of of the the historical temples and and, and all those monuments with like the modern. Yeah. Um, and at the time, like I said, it was in two thousand. So. The cell phones were not ubiquitous the way that they are now with okay. smartphones so you were just seeing like the beginning of people who had these little things in their ears you know and you're like wait they're talking to people and they're just walking around it looks like they're talking to themselves oh you mean the bluetooth yeah bluetooth oh. and the phones i guess were really tiny back then so we were used to bigger cell phones and flip phones And it was just becoming a thing oh yeah had. i remember like yeah the small Motorolas. Yeah, yeah 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 so so i feel like I was watching, like, oh, what the future of technology is going to be, you know? And they have I forgot what the names of the districts are, but they have that one electronic district, and you just see, like, cutting edge of TV screens and videos and, and cameras and, you know, phones and all this stuff, and it was wild to say, like, oh, is this where we're going? And in some ways, it, it was, right? Yeah, it's, you know, when I was in Japan, I, uh,
0: I you know, I clicked on, like, the equipment of their their sports center, and this was during the baseball season. So right. I said, "Okay, well, I'll watch some baseball." And they just showed the Japanese players in the in the majors. Yeah. So it was just pitching. Oh, it wasn't. It was just American baseball. It was American baseball, but they were Which just one? showing <laughs> like, yeah, they're just showing. <laughs> sort of, so it was just like all pitching highlights. Right, right. <laughs> like, Hideo Nomo. Yeah, like,
2: yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was interesting, and, and you know, just on that subject, just watching Ichiro play now and seeing like how his career has played out after he had an entire career in Japan and the fact that he was able to not just translate that to a career in America, but like clearly a first ballot hall of fame career in America. It's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, he,
0: he's like a God over there. Yeah.
2: I, as well, he should be, I guess, as much as you revere any kind of athlete. Um, he's pretty incredible. And, and I remember when he first came over, Uh, that was 2001, I guess, was his um, rookie year in Seattle. And the All-Star Game was in Seattle that year, and that's the year Seattle won, I forgot, over 100 games. They ended up not doing so hot in the playoffs, but they sort of dominated that year, um, and it was all about Ichiro. So I got to go to Japan, I I got to go to Seattle for the All-Star Game. I got to meet Ichiro at that All-Star Game in Seattle, and it was just, he was sort of the top of the town back then, and now as he comes to Seattle. Did he have a translator? I didn't. I basically they were taking batting practice before the game. Um, and he's in the field and I'm in my costume and I was like oh. my brother was with me at the time, he was like, Go over to Ichiro, I'll get some cool pictures. So I went over <laughs> to Ichiro and like shook his hand and like he was kinda saying, he was, he was speaking in English enough that, like, and I'm not speaking at all, because I'm right. not <laughs> Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> it was great. It was, it was a perfect conversation. But uh, they actually took some, I guess, AP, or someone had photographed us in the outfield, and, like, it became a baseball card, so I can Google it and, like, see wow. my hero and everything. Yeah. So you get cool moments like that that you otherwise wouldn't have had. So,
0: um, not, not to keep harping on this thing, yeah. but uh, what, what were the ESPN spots like to
2: shoot? Uh, they're fun, they're, they're, you know, this, I guess that um, ad campaign has gone on since like 97. I think that's when this is Sports Center kind of thing began. So I got involved in 99, 2000 and uh, I went up to Bristol, Connecticut a couple of times to their campus and they shoot everything right there, you know, it all takes place in the offices and the cubicles and in the parking lots and in the cafeteria. and. Uh, it's a brilliant ad campaign, so much so that it's still going on. You're never, you know, want for for
0: yeah. Ad, for people for people listening who, who aren't too familiar, they have athletes in, in like these ridiculous situations where they're like actual office workers in ESPN. Yeah, it's like as if
2: everyone exists in the same mundane world, whether it's sportscasters, athletes, mascots. Right. You know, everyone's just kind of like in the in the dining hall just eating lunch, but there happens to be like the. You know. <laughs> How many? So I saw
0: the one with you and, and Stuart Scott and I forget who. Uh, who Josh Hamilton. Yeah, and yeah. Hamilton.
2: Did you do another one? Um, I, it's so hard to remember which. I, I did a bunch of commercials for all different kinds of products and I went up to. I did another one for. So it's hard to remember which was for which. I did another one at Sports. Listen I, to you. I know. Well, well I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I don't say that to brag. I just say that because sometimes the funny part was they'd have you featured in the commercials and sometimes they'd just have you as like an extra. Like they would need. Mr. Met sitting in the background during a, um, like there was a, there was a scene, there was a, a commercial they did with Joe Montana where he was a chef in the kitchen and I guess he lost his Super Bowl ring like in one of the pots and pans of like, so they had Mr. Met in the commercial but he's not featured, he's just like eating lunch at another table while all the action's going on with everyone at this table, like in the back you just happen to see Mr. Met sitting there. so. I was I was on I guess from a from a casting standpoint
0: they would actually they actually got you as opposed to
2: well with the Mets there if if you wanted Mr. Met you got Mr. Met you we didn't send the costume Uh, out so you were getting the guy who does it at the games and all that um there had to be some kind of consistency oh that's good that's why yeah it was huge for me and I because I cared so much about the the character I I appreciated that like It wasn't just a costume that anyone could put on. It was something that, like, I knew how to do it. The character was aspects of my personality, you know, all that stuff. Um, So, so yeah, it was nice that they actually would send a car and take me up to Bristol. Yeah, it was fancy stuff. (laughs) Just being on that campus there, if you watch SportsCenter every day, like I do, um, you know, you hear about it and you see the commercials and stuff. And it really is like this college campus. It's just, it was incredible to be there, to like walk into the studio where they shoot SportsCenter. Did you meet anybody else besides Stuart Scott? Um, yeah, I guess I met a couple of people through the years. Um, I think I met Linda Cohn, who's a huge Mets. I player. met her, yeah. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. I met her
0: at like this weird like convention and it was right when... Um uh, Keith Oberman left uh-huh. and I said hey, do you miss Keith Oberman? And she's like no yeah. <laughs> He's gone
2: on to do other things, right? Yeah, so I so and I had met a bunch of the ESPN people at other events too They used to have um, the ESPN zone in Manhattan. Yeah, in yeah Times Square So I did a ton of events there. So sometimes I'd see some of their personalities here and there um, But yeah, yeah like, no one it's funny I don't think anyone knows me. I don't think if anyone saw me today, they'd have no idea who I was. But I mean, no, I did. I met you back in two thousand. You to show me gloves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, so how many, I mean, do they do like quick takes? Is it like...
2: Um, it's the cool thing is, I mean, you know, Stuart Scott, who obviously passed away, I think a year ago, maybe a little yeah. over a year ago. He was so good, not just on the air as a sportscaster, but he had done, I guess, so many of these commercials and his person. So they just improvise. They have an idea of what they want, and they like it to just be natural, so they just, they improvise. And they'll, so each take was slightly different. They know kind of the, the arc of the scene and the arc of the 15-30 second commercial, but they'll let the guys kind of riff off in between. And sometimes for the athletes, it was probably more difficult, because they're not used to that kind of thing. But I remember the specific one with Stuart Scott. It starts off with, Mr. Met and Stuart Scott just having a mundane conversation by the microwave and each time we would do a take he would just riff on because I can't talk so it was all him basically he would just riff on something else and it was like stifling laughter in the costume because it was so mundane but it was so funny (laughs) the things that he was talking about it's great so you only get like a little clip of whatever it was in the beginning of that specific commercial but uh yeah so but but the 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 tag at the end was that, yeah, like that's impro- scripted. Oh, okay. It's scripted, but he can kind of go off script. But like he says, as, like,
0: those were a bunch of his, his, his relatives or yeah, whatever. Yeah, so
2: the, 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 the comedy in the commercial is that Josh Hamilton had just won the Home Run Derby, I guess, at Yankee Stadium, where he put on this incredible show. So he comes in as Stuart Scott and Mr. Metter chatting by the microwave and Mr. Met storms off and Josh Hamilton says why What's wrong with him and Stuart Scott says yeah those home run derby balls he hit those were his cousins yeah. so i think it was it was like scripted that that was the punchline but i think he could kind of get to it any way he wanted right, to yeah. and he was great he was like it, it was like watching an actor improvise you know a, a comedic actor improvise so it was fun. That was, that's part of the great thing about their commercials is that these guys and these, you know, these sportscasters, they, they're, they're so good at what they do that they can speak the language. They can just right. kind of be natural. What about the athletes? Them. Were they kind of like robots? Um, I mean, the ones that I dealt with, sometimes they are, sometimes they're great. I, I had done commercials, not with the Mets, but uh, another set of commercials I did in a different mascot costume. It sort of became my niche. In a weird <laughs> I did commercials with Peyton and Eli Manning. And I did commercials with the Williams sisters, and Peyton Manning is in so many commercials now. He's so good at it, yeah. right? and it's the same kind of thing. Like I heard
0: his brother, I heard not so much. Uh,
2: Eli was a little stiffer, yeah. I would say. You know, so so it's just I think it's just depends on the person, depends on their experience, their comfort level. I mean, Eli's done a million commercials too, but Peyton just sort of has a more natural kind of thing to it, I guess. Um, what yeah. were the Williams sisters like? Uh, they were super friendly to me. This was again. I don't remember what year it was. It had to be around 06 or 07. Oh, well, they're still winning. Yeah, so back then they were the biggest deal And you know, flash forward 10 years. Oh, wait a minute. Was this like, um, like the double stuff? Like the Oreo? Yeah. Okay. So I did commercials with Oreo where I was in a big Oreo costume. Oh, okay. And, uh, I was, I, I... got cast as the mascot for Oreos because of my vast experience in mascot costumes. Here I am with, like, degrees in theater and everything. (laughs) Yet the jobs I'm getting are, like, I have to be covered head to toe in whatever ridiculous costume. I'll take it, you know, paid for my insurance and everything. So, yeah, so there was a series of commercials with the Williams sisters, and we were at the U.S. Open courts. It was in the off season, I guess, and they were, you know, scripted and whatever. But so basically it was the Williams sisters, like, serving tennis balls at me. Um, which is an interesting perspective. And what to are you have. doing? Are you I'm just, in this like, big Ore- Yeah, like I, like I, the costume. You didn't really have control of the hands. They were sort of uh, manipulated by these like rods inside the costume. But one of the the hands on the outside was holding a tennis racket. So it's this Oreo mascot who's ready to play tennis with. Oh, okay, I think I remember that. And then she serves it, like, at him and knocks him over, and it's Pratt Falls, and... Were you, you like, shitting your pants that she was gonna kill you? I just didn't know, like, (laughs) first of all, can this costume take the impact (laughs) of my boy and sister serve? And it was just weird, like, so I have no... I'm standing there in this giant costume, which, you know, it's... The ball can't actually hit me, but still, when... Serena Williams is firing tennis balls right it's like when the guy with the foam with the foam
0: suit and he has like the cannonball yeah yeah yeah. or like the guy being shot with a cannonball
2: (laughs) so it's kind of that weird like oh god what am I getting myself into you know she must look Enormous in person, right? Yeah, I mean it just like it's intimidating, let me put it that way. So I'm standing on the other side of the court and she's like getting ready and she said and she said to the director, She's like, Should I just like really serve it or should I kinda he's like, No, no, serve away. And I'm like, Whoa, whoa, whoa,
0: whoa, what is this, jackass? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's what it
2: felt like, right? And uh, so yeah, sure enough she like served it and the it has to hit me directly because that's what makes me fall down scripting of the commercial so yeah there they, we did a number of takes but each one she sometimes she'd nick me sometimes but like yeah she'd hit me directly and while it didn't actually hurt being hit you're staring at a tennis ball <laughs> oh. coming at you like 120 <laughs> miles an hour it's uh it's one it, those are the times where you're like you you you're simultaneously like this is like, what am I doing here? How did I get myself into this spot at this very moment? But, but, this is pretty fucking I'm hanging cool. out with the Williams yeah. sisters and I'm essentially, you know, she's serving a tennis ball. It was, granted, it was at me, not to me, but, um, but still, like, this is a weird, sometimes life takes weird tracks and you kind of have that epiphany as you're in it. Like, wow, what, what am I doing? You know? Wow.
0: Yeah, I would have just probably just shit my pants. And were, are those long, t- long days?
2: Uh, well, I mean, commercials are commercials. So some days are long, some days are pretty quick. You know, we had it. We I think we were shooting on that particular day a couple of different spots for Oreo, and they were short commercials. But being in a costume, if the day's three hours long, it's a long day. But if yeah. you're in the costume for an eight-hour day, so I don't. So Where'd it, you shoot that? That was at the U.S. Open at the Tennis oh. Center, yeah, um, in Flushing, which was conveniently right by. So I forget. I, I the the spots are ringing about for me. And then how did they?
0: So they're playing against the Manning Brothers? They, no, so they so the, the, the,
2: the, the commercials, I guess that series of commercials were, um, it was for, they came up with this uh, double stuff racing team. So it was like they would have two against two, and like who could eat the cookies right. the quickest or whatever. So it was the Williams sisters were the team in some of the spots, and the Manning Brothers were a team in other spots, and sometimes they were all in spots together. And then interestingly enough... They brought Donald Trump into the commercials, and <laughs> and then Donald Trump needed a partner, so they had um, Daryl Hammond from Saturday Night Live was like his double. As Donald Trump? As Donald Trump. So it was Donald Trump and Daryl Hammond as Donald Trump, and, and they were taking on the Manning brothers and the Williams sisters in this double stuff racing. Were you in... You so was I was in commercials with Donald Trump.
0: Wait, so when they're playing, they're playing against you? Everybody's playing against you? Well...
2: The- there was a series of commercials so when we got to the donald trump ones it was when the apprentice was kind of at its peak and uh little did we know that he'd be where he is today um and they were sort of mocking the the apprentice like boardroom so so those commercials were shot in manhattan in these like giant boardrooms where trump is at the table and he's firing everyone and so it was, it was less of a sports thing, but it was kind of with the still racing and this eating of a double stuff. It's really a brilliant marketing campaign, well, well, the, the fact part, that we all remember it. Yeah. What, what was it like just observing him back then? Oh boy, oh. <laughs> conversation <laughs> takes a turn. It, he was like, it was like nothing, like no one I've ever seen before in that I've never seen someone, I dare use the word narcissistic. He was in his own world. So you had the Manning brothers who were elite athletes making millions and millions of dollars And in the same room as Donald Trump, who's just... He had his own makeup people. He had his own hair people. He was... The commercials were directed by... Do you know Peter Berg? The actor, director. Uh So, I don't know
0: why they were directed by Peter Berg. Yeah, for for folks listening, Peter Berg was an actor on... He did a... He was on Chicago Hope, I think. Yeah. And then he was in... He had a small... He had a, a supporting role in Copland... He's been an, He's an actor in a lot of
2: uh, like action-oriented movies. He's directed. He's gone on to be a director. Yeah, in fact, Friday Night Lights, the series, is like his brainchild. So he was the producer, and I uh, think he directed a lot of that. The Kingdom
0: with Jamie Foxx. Uh-huh. He did uh, recently um, the movie with Mark Wahlberg as a soldier. What's that called? <laughs> I wow. can't remember. But yeah, so he's a okay, director, so yeah,
2: producer. So, so for some reason, Peter Berg was directing these spots, right, for Oreo, with all these celebrities in it. And... The days where Donald Trump was involved, it was almost as if Donald Trump was directing the commercial because he'd say like, all right, I'm ready. Let's do this. Meanwhile, ever like, so it was on his time. It was, I had never seen someone who was a part of something bigger just take control of the situation. It was almost as if we were at his beck and call, which was a weird thing because he was just a part of this commercial, like Donald Trump was no more or less important than the Manning Brothers, and I like to think we're no more or less important than the Oreo mascot, <laughs> though I know that I was much less important. Um, so it's just interesting, like every time, if he didn't like a take, he would stop the take, his makeup people would come in and orange him up and, wow. and, and comb his hair back over, and then like when they left... Who do you like, think you were, President of the United States? Yeah, back then, right? <laughs> little did we know, little did we know. But it was it was so weird being on set with this guy who was just kind of like Was the consensus like who's this dick? I Don't know if that was the consensus, because I don't know if we knew how bad a person he was at the time. I mean, from
0: what you're describing, I mean, I think that would... Yeah. It's weird, because, like, a lot of people have
2: said, like, well, if you talk to him, he seems like a nice guy. No, I don't... I didn't get that from him. He seemed like a guy who was just, like, doing whatever he wanted to do, and everyone else had to listen to what he wanted, or... It was almost like he was in another world. Like, he was in his own... He could only see from his own perspective, and there was no... There was no understanding that you're... Like, he, we were there for him. He wasn't there as part of this other thing. <laughs> as I said, little did we know, like, how that would translate into today's, you uh, know, uh, horror show. But, um, yeah, it was, it was like, and, and everyone was kind of going along with it, which is also sort of a weird... So, you, know,
0: you worked with Peter Burke on the, 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 um, the Williams sisters spot, right?
2: I, actually, I don't think Peter Burke directed those. He directed the ones with Trump in it. So, these were, like, maybe a year apart, I don't know. I, I did the... Well, I, th- I guess what I'm saying is you you saw how he changed his behavior. Oh, yeah, because I had done a different commercial with him with that Trump wasn't involved in. And it was almost like everyone kind of let Trump do his thing. And no one... You know, it was like, oh, well, Don- let Donald be... Let the Donald be the Donald. And we'll just kind of make sure we get what we need and, and sort of work around his behavior. Which kind of is, in a weird way, is what's happening now, right? Everyone's kind of right. letting him do his own thing. And we're sort of like, well... We better not step on this too much. And, of course, there's plenty of people who think we should step on this, but it's, like, gotten so out of control. So in a weird way, like, back then, ten <laughs> years ago, or whenever it was, like, I, I saw the dynamic of this. You movie. could have stopped
0: it! So, uh, I was in an Oreo costume, and I couldn't
2: talk. If they gave me a speaking role, I could have. <laughs> that was my
0: He's gonna like, favorite. threw water on him and yeah,
1: watched him
2: disintegrate. Something. Um, but yeah, in, in a weird way, it was like he was dominating the room when there were other people who it was their job to like say how things were. But he, he, everyone kind of deferred to him or, or at least, um, I don't know, let him do his thing, and, and we sort of took a back seat to it. Wow, and he was, like, telling, like, gaffers what to do. Not necessarily gaffers, but just, like, all right, I'm ready, let's do this. And everyone's, like, okay, I guess we're, (laughs) like, if we're on a break, like, when he was done with his break, or when he wanted to take a break, not according to, like, SAG rules or anything, but according to the Donald rules. Wow. Like, just kind of running his own show, And, and his little team knew when to step in and fix his makeup and fix his hair, and then he, it was just, like, it was watching... It was just watching a person exist in a bubble. It was really interesting. And here I am in this costume for most of the time, like looking through mesh, as you were saying earlier, and sort of watching it from a distance. And while I was in the room, I'm still watching it from a distance, but sort of this just interesting dynamic of this person who had no sense of what else, of all the other people that were part of it. Was the Oreo more comfortable, in, like, <laughs> like in terms of like, you know, your neck and... Yeah, so, so it wasn't, it wasn't like it was just a giant Oreo with eyes and a mouth and, and like arms and a headband. Right? And he had a headband for these particular commercials because it was the athletic version. Um, and yeah, so it wasn't comfortable because you're sort of in the body of this big cookie. So I didn't have the mobility that I had in the Mr. Met costume. Um, and and I didn't like the arms that moved weren't my arms they were just I had like these rods inside that I would manipulate <laughs> so I couldn't grip anything I couldn't bend my arms, um, and plus like it's it's narrow inside if you picture like an Oreo and I'm standing yeah. looking out the the round part of it um, so I'm kind of but but there was there was movement within the costume and didn't you have like big bulky like. Like clown shoes? Yeah, yeah, which I was very used to from from (laughs) my Met's days. Like big shoes and big gloves are no problem for me. Yeah, so I'm wearing like tights underneath it, like these sparkling blue tights. And then I despite that all, you're looking at Trump again, look at that clown. Yeah, (laughs) and every once in a while, they'd actually remember there was a guy in an Oreo costume, and they'd be like, oh, let's get Matt out of the costume while we're on a break here. So I'd have like two people help lift it off of me. The Mr. Met thing, I guess, was more self-sufficient, whereas this one, I kind of needed them to lower the costume onto me. Um, but yeah, every once in a while they would like take it out so I can breathe and stand next to a fan. And those were... were you like just drenched, like Patrick Ewing in the free throw line? Yeah, yeah. Which again is something that I was kind of used to from my Mets days. And this was at the same time I was doing the Mets thing. Um, so yeah, I'm always just pouring, (laughs) dripping wet, um, just hydrating all the time. And, uh, yeah. So every once in a while I would take it off and kind of, they would kind of forget about me until we were rolling, which I once again knew my role in the in the in the commercial um which was fine for me so i could kind of stand off to the side in front of a fan and just watch what was happening <laughs> and that's when i was really able to observe this sort of narcissistic you know guy just running the show in in and, and days where we were shooting and he wasn't there it was nothing like that wow yeah yeah <laughs> little did i know um but these are the weird experiences that i've accumulated like i have so many of these kind of like, what am I doing here? Much like staring down a serve of Venus oh, <laughs> of Serena Williams. You know, here I am in the corner of a big, uh, it was on, like, the Upper East Side in Manhattan, and I'm in this big boardroom-looking thing, and I'm shooting a commercial, which I love to do, but watching Donald Trump across the room. Not to who mention, was he firing?
0: Or who was in the boardroom? Uh,
2: for this particular spot it was uh, Donald and Daryl Hammond and then the Manning brothers were on the other side and they were kind of racing each other and then there was like a guy playing the referee to make sure everything was legally done I suppose and then I'm just the Oreo mascot cheering them on in the background Uh,
0: so Donald wasn't even like joking with Daryl Hammond
2: I, I don't even remember. It must have been weird, right? As you're doing this thing, there's a guy dressed up, right? <laughs> like, impersonating you. And, I guess he he's just so oblivious that he's just like... But it's like, this is before it was a, he was a serious thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, back then, Donald Trump hosted The Apprentice, and he was a reality TV show star. Didn't matter what his politics were. Didn't matter if he behaved in a certain way, because people were interested in just this narcissist's behavior and he owned buildings and that's all, that's all he was. It wasn't a thing we had to worry about, you know what I mean? So the way that he treated everyone was kind of funny in a way, it was kind of like, oh my god, he's really, he's really like this, how does a human being behave like this? But there was no repercussions, there was no like, bigger picture to it, because what is he gonna do? The next season of The Apprentice, which he can fire people and he can behave the way he wants to behave, and there was nothing... There was no follow up. There was no fear that he would live in Washington D.C. and, you know, preside <laughs> over all of us, um, which is so. So, I guess that behavior at the time was a joke, and it was it was it was a, it was a funny-ish joke. Whereas now, that same behavior, it's like, oh, this is not a joke. This is a real thing, you know? <laughs> and we could not possibly imagined that it would have it, it would have translated. I feel like it. if if there's ever a time travel, we're gonna find out, like, <laughs> like in like. In, like
0: when he gets like, if he gets sworn in in January, that's when the people come in from the other portal. Right. Like, okay. Wait, wait, like, wait, wait, yeah. yeah, horizon yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. This
2: is the time. Yeah. <laughs> we, we let it go long enough. We hope for that, don't we? Hope for that. Um, so did did all this physicality um, inform your acting? <laughs> uh, so when I got the job, like it, it's weird because I'm. I, if you had to define me as one thing, I, I don't know if I'm an inside out actor or if I'm an outside in actor. You know, there's you're always. I guess it depends on the role that I'm playing. But definitely the physicality, I had to become more aware of it. So when I got the the Mr. Met role, I sort of had to tap into a, a, a piece of acting that was I was sort of against as far as being like bigger than life and, and throwing away all the subtlety, or at least like I said, finding the subtlety within this slapstick kind of comedy. Um, and then when I went back into being a full-time actor, I guess, or as much as one can be a full-time actor. Uh, like going back to like, oh yeah, you like looks across the room can be subtle and then you don't have to turn your whole body, you know, <laughs> just, you have to, if not retrain myself, not just, yeah, yeah. just remind myself that like little things can play much, you know, in a much, uh, more subtle fashion than, than when you were in this costume. So I don't think it influenced my acting at all. I think quite the opposite is that when I was playing the part of Mr. Met, I had to like find another part of my acting that maybe was stifled because I appreciate subtlety a little more than I appreciate slapstick humor. Um, and then going back when I was done with that job, it was kind of like, Oh yeah, yeah, this is the stuff that I can do. This is, I don't have to be so big. I can kind of go go back to what I think is funny, you know? So when you, when you made the conscious
0: decision of, you know, of the, the, you know, that, that self-assessment, how has your perspective on, on the craft changed? Like, how are you, how do you feel about acting now then as opposed to, you know, let's say, you
2: know, 10 years ago or 13 Um, years ago? I would say that my passion for it has never ceased and it's just as strong as it always was. But maybe the years of wisdom, the years of maybe being away from it a little bit and then getting back into it. Um, the the it, it highlighted sort of the difficulty of it. Because when I got into the Mets job, I was only a year out of college, and I was on top of the world, and I was graduated with honors from my university, and I won awards, and I was ready to take on the world and be, you know, on Broadway and be in movies and all this stuff. And I had these these great these great goals, and I was going to achieve everything. And then, you know, I had to find a side job while I was going to do all those great things. And that's when the Mets thing came around. And I guess... Years later, when I left the job, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm reinserting myself into the business of acting, I always, like I said, I maintain the passion. But I think the difficulty of it, or sort of the the steadfastedness of it, or the fact that you have to you have to be willing to do th- more than you ever thought you were wanted, you know, willing to do, or you had to do those kind of uh, shows that don't pay, do passion projects, create your own work, all that stuff. Um, That became a little more clear to me, the fact that it is as competitive as it is. It wasn't as, um, I guess, committing yourself to the difficulty of the career was a big kind of um, realization, right? What was your perception of it before? Well, if that's what you have now, I'm just curious, what what was it before? I just thought it was going to be easier. I thought like my whole life up until graduating college, I worked my ass off. But I also achieved things that I could, like, I I climbed ladders that I was wanting to climb. And I think that... So you're like Ken Griffey Jr. (laughs) Yeah, like 19 years old, ready to, (laughs) you know, gonna be in the Hall of Fame someday. But I guess I just never realized it doesn't all, like, big fish in smaller ponds are great, right? But then you get into the pond of New York City. And I guess I just realized that... (laughs) We're all extraordinary, but we're all also ordinary, and in the eyes of others, right? Um, And it's hard to hold on to that kind of light that you think you have, and to keep when when the whole when the business just kind of doesn't care about you as much, right? So I think I wasn't as aware of it when I left school because my trajectory had gone up, 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 and then all of a sudden years later, I realized like that trajectory doesn't mean anything because you're only available to do what you're available to do today and you're walking into a room where no one cares where you came from they just care where you are right now so I think the struggle of of, of finding my own way in the business and and, and and having to pick myself up off after all these uh, rejections I guess that's the change is that it was just much easier back then and I thought it was going to continue that way and then I realized years later with the wisdom of of, of age that no you got to work and you got to make yourself and it's not about talent it's not about you know it's about so, it is about that and it's about so many other things as well And I think I just thought that if I'm going up 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 then it's just going to continue that way and when it doesn't continue that way it was sort of a, a realization that you have to kind of adjust the way you, you you think about it and the way you look about it at it and the way you go about it
0: um do you do you view theater and movies the same way uh, that you did before or do you is it more are you more keen on it now
2: or are you more uh are you more objective for you i think i think i've i've kind of honed in more on the things that i like um i think back compare i'm comparing like my 22 year old self out of college to my 40 year old self today i think like the things that i'm drawn to have definitely, I, have, have become more acute, you know, that have become uh, more defined. I, when I do write, when I write stuff or when I perform and stuff, or I know what speaks to me more. So I think back then it was like, I just want to be a movie star. Now it's like, I don't need to be a movie star. I want to like work on things that I have a passion for and I don't know if they're going to be huge movies or independent films or things that no one ever sees, but I want to. There, it's more of a passion uh, towards a, a, a towards a fulfillment rather than like just this idea of what movie stardom is or or being on Broadway. I think the if, if the goals I had when I was a kid were like be on Broadway, be in movies, I didn't realize like how general those terms were. Broadway is just a thing; it's just a place that you can yeah, you get a, a paycheck every week, but it's you know that sort of cachet of Broadway or movie star wore off through the years. And now it's like, no, I just want to, I want to work on things that I really like working on. I want to work with people that I really like working with who have the same kind of eye for a, a certain aesthetic or, you know what I mean? Um, so I would say my, my focus is kind of granted, I will take jobs where I'm hired. I'll wear an Oreo costume if someone wants me to, cause that's, but is
0: your, are you leaning more toward like, uh, something more like, like Brian Stokes Mitchell who can, you know, he's obviously, you know, a Broadway legend who can sing yeah. and act, and but also be a Mr. Robot, or something, are you looking more toward, like, more like a dramatic focus?
2: Well, let me be clear. I'm looking for anywhere where people want to hire me for whatever. So if I go in an audition where they want me to sing 16 bars of something, that's fine. If I go in an audition where they want me to say seven lines from a script of really intense dialogue, that's fine, too. So I'm, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> but if I had my druthers... Um, I, musical theater was always such a huge part of my life and in a way it still is and I just haven't done musicals lately. So I think the stuff that I'm drawn to, aside from jobs, just for the sake of having a job, are more, um, I don't know, I'm drawn to kind of a more, uh, I hate to use this word, but like an independent voice, an honest voice, something that's not as blockbustery, not as marketable maybe. Um, and the more writing that I do, the more I, I, I hone in on the things that that speak to me. Just kind of, I, I like ordinary things. I like I like a story that's that is ordinary, but maybe there's a touch of the extraordinary in it. So musical theater, which I, as I said, I still have a passion for, very few musicals speak to me in that way. So I don't I don't go out and pursue it in the way that I used to. Whereas um, I don't know movies that I'm drawn to, where I I. I I, I, I'm not as drawn to, like, Marvel films. I see their place. I see their, like, why? And, and the stories behind them are obviously the most important thing, but that's not what I'm drawn to. I'm, I'm more drawn to kind of, I, I live in New York, so that's my particular experience, but I'm drawn to stories that are just like, here are people who live in New York who are existing and, and, and connecting and not connecting and human right. interactions um, that can be subtle but profound, so that's the kind of stuff that I want to be in. That's the kind of stuff I want to write, and it's the kind of stuff I want to be in. Um, you know, sometimes I uh, I grew up
0: I, I grew up you know reading comic books, and I, I'm not a huge fan of those, of those movies. Uh-huh. But sometimes I think about like um, you know like the uh, <laughs> like the the pretentious like journalist who got into like being a film critic because he saw like Truffaut yeah. or... <laughs> and his editor goes, "Okay, now you got to go review Ant Man." Right, 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 right. right, right. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Right,
2: and, and and this is no not disparaging anyone who is in Ant Man or, or or produces it or writes it. Cause, no, I, I no, I hear what you. You know said. what I mean? Yeah. It's it's not. And, and like I said, if if I got like a seven lines on in the next Ant Man movie, I am thrilled to do it. Trust me. But if you're talking about like what I'm passionate about. Um, the movies that I want to see are just kind of like I, I, I like I'll cite like Alexander Payne. I like his type of movies because there's there's a quirk to them, there's a darkness, but there's a comedy and there's tremendous heart to it. I'm not a fan of I shouldn't say I'm not a fan of, but I'm more drawn to I rather than a happy ending or, a, or an ending per se, I, I like it when someone struggles, but then there's like maybe a hope. There's a, a, a change of perspective a little bit that brings in like something that's going to make them behave differently. You know what I mean? So if I'm talking about Alexander Payne films, um, yeah, like, so Sideways, for instance. It's a quirky film. It's funny, but it's dark. Like bad things happen. People behave badly. And there's this weird arc to it. But there's also... It can be mundane at times, and I'm drawn to that, and the conversations they have are wordy, but they're profound. And then the character goes through this whole thing, and he's so blocked off, and he's so troubled. And at the end of the movie, sorry, spoiler alert, (laughs) but it's been out since, you know, (laughs) 20 (laughs) years now, it doesn't matter. so, but at the end, like, he finally comes to a thing where he makes a decision that's slightly different than the decisions he always made, and you don't know where he's going to go. You literally see, like, all these cars pulling out of a parking lot, and they're all going right, and he just goes left, and something is different, and then he drives up the coast of California, and you assume you know where he's going, and he's going to visit Virginia Madsen, who has, he's, been kept, he's kept himself away from, and he knocks on the door, and then it fades to black. So you don't know, she can open the door and punch him in the face, she can open the door and have sex with him. you have no idea. You just know that, like, he came to a place where he made a difference. Right, decision. it's not
0: in a, on a, like, neat and tidy, and, on, like, wrapped in a bow yes. for you. Yes, yes. Which, I think, uh... Yeah, I think for, for me, like, that seems to be, like, a, a trend of, like, the unearned happy ending, Yeah. where I think a lot of people are kind of, um just kind of regurgitating that. And I think uh, moviegoers and audiences, they seem to just kind of be okay with it.
2: Yeah. I, and I think people do do find happiness in happy endings and in bows, and they like they like a solution, right? And And once again, like Ant-Man, there's a place for that. I think that's great. I think there's a place for a lot of other things too. For me personally, what speaks to me, because I live in this city that's difficult, right? I live in this city that kind of... On rainy days, you end up with like from knee down, your pants are soaked. Or when it snows, you have to <laughs> climb these like mountain, like literal <laughs> mountains on the side of every sidewalk, and the slush puddle. So there's things that you have to navigate your way around. And when you get to your destination, so I'm going to continue with this metaphor. When you get to your destination your pants are not dry. You got there, right? Or you're somewhere different that you needed to be, but you're still like, your socks are still soaking wet and you may not have brought a second pair of socks. <laughs> it's, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, you're in the room now and you got there, but, and but, but it's not perfect. It's not in a tidy little bow. Someone's not handing you a fresh pair of socks and a fresh pair of pants and everything is like, now I can take on the world. There's like, there's a, A heaviness to it and with all of that I still try to find the hope and that's where I say like a hopeful ending rather than a happy ending because there's a So so when it comes to art when it comes to movies and things and plays, that's what I'm that's what I'm drawn to is sort of like Recognizing the struggle and recognizing how much how difficult it is like every day to do whatever you have to do but also understanding that if you continue Under a cloud, well, you'll just continue under the cloud. So maybe go, maybe make a left turn instead of going straight that day, and maybe it'll be a little bit less cloudy on that other road. You don't know, but there's that opportunity. Um, I don't know. That's the kind of stuff that I'm drawn to, and that's the kind of stuff that I want to write, and that's the kind of stuff I want to be in. Um, So how do you maintain that as just as a
0: as a person living in this very difficult city? Of how do you not? Okay, I'll I'll put. This is a perfect example of, of New York for me. So I'm walking, like, I'm walking, I'm in the subway, and I'm going up the stairs, and there's this, um, so there's this, uh, guy coming down the stairs, and this woman next to me, she's got, like, Trader Joe's bags or something, and she's beaming, she's, like, it's almost infectious, like, I'm not gonna say anything, but it's, like, cool, like,
2: so the guy coming down the stairs goes, hey, what the fuck are you smiling for? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like,
0: what, dude, like,
2: (laughs) Well, what you're doing right now is the perfect response. Like, you have to lap, you have to recognize that that's what happens in this, in this world, in this city specifically, and you kind of have to smile at it, and I'm certainly, first of all, <laughs> you said, how do you deal with this kind of stuff? Well, I just, like, before I was here, I was at a therapy session, so, like, that's part of how you deal, you know, you just, uh-huh. but what I like to do is, I'm, I'm a, I'm a huge observer. When I'm on the subway, yeah, oftentimes I have my earbuds in and I have music playing as, like, my little soundtrack that takes me through the day. But I'm also, my eyes are almost always open and I'm watching interactions and I'm watching people cutting themselves off from interactions and I'm watching just this weird dynamic that we all have. And sometimes it makes me smile and sometimes it makes me cringe. But I'm just, I try to make myself aware of it. Just, and then I read stories about other people and their experiences. Um, and I think having an open eye to it is the first step of just like sort of existing in, in this world and in this city. Um, having maybe a little bit of a sense of humor about it is also helpful. And it's trying to. I, I understand that for all the shit that this city throws at you, like this is where I choose to be. I want to be in New York City. I live in Queens, which is not the most luxurious place, but I love my apartment. I live in Astoria. I've been there for a long time. I love Astoria. Um, I love. Even the subways, and the subways break down, and you have to get from point A to point B, and sometimes what should take 30 minutes takes, you know, 72 minutes, and that stuff's out of your control. But as you're doing it, if you can, for me, if I can kind of step back, like observe what's going on, understand that I don't have control over the MTA, I don't have control over signals and and signal problems and switches breaking down, But I can control how I react to the things that are happening in in the car. I can control, like, if if everyone else is getting livid, I can say, do I want to be that way? Or do I want to just, like, breathe my way through it and kind of understand, like, hey, we're all in this together. So it's like finding those moments. Um, I guess the best, most specific example I can give is is uh, driving in traffic. I have a car, right? I live in Queens. I grew up on Long Island, so we're not allowed to give up our cars. (laughs) And and I don't use my car half as much as I used to. But when I do, I find that if you're sitting in traffic, which you're always sitting in in New York City or in Long Island, um, it's such a place where everyone gets angry, right? And you grip the steering wheel and you feel the tension in your shoulders and in your neck and, and, you know, music is playing and the music's loud and people are honking and just everything is. Once again, it feels like everything's conspiring against you and people are cutting you off. And then I say, okay, here's a time where I'm sitting in the car, if I need to be there at 3 o'clock and it's now 2.57 and it's 20 minutes away and I'm not moving, I can't get there at 3 o'clock. I can't. So what do I do in this situation? Do I freak out about the fact that I can't get there at 3 o'clock or do I just kind of embrace where I am and try to find the, either the humor in it or the light in it or whatever And at that point, I'll realize, oh my God, I'm gripping the steering wheel really tight. Just relax. Just let your fingers like looser on the steering wheel. This dude is trying to get into my lane and this is my lane. You know what? let the dude in your lane. And if he gives you the finger as he drives by, just smile because it's a funny thing when someone gives you the finger for nothing. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right, you're not going to speed up and try to cut him off and give him the finger. Right, I could do that. And that's just, you know, sort of perpetuating this aggressiveness. So so when I'm in the car and I'm sitting in traffic, it's a perfect time for me to sort of take stock of where I am in my little bubble in my, you know, 2009 Volkswagen. (laughs) But like right now... I'm listening to something on the radio and I'm choosing what station I'm listening to and that's kind of cool because I could change the station and find something better or I can stay. So that's cool. I have this time in the car with music and my air conditioning's working. So I'm not too hot. I'm at a good temperature and it's going to take me longer to get to the place I need to be. But the music is okay. The temperature's okay. I can't drive my way through these people. So what's like the best? what's the best way for me to, like, de-stress and sort of, like, loosen up on the steering wheel and sort of let my shoulders down a little bit and not get pissed at the person who's so angry at me, you know? There's a funny Louis C.K. routine, and I'm not going to try to redo it because that's the worst when people say there's it. a funny routine. <laughs> yeah. can not funny? Yeah. But, but he does talk about when someone, like, driving next in, him oh, yeah. the window, he's like, fuck you, like, I hope oh. you fucking die. And, the, and he's like... And he was like, the guy's honking yeah, the horn. Yeah. these these
0: cars aren't clear right
2: right i know there's nothing so it's just if you can find that humor like a guy hopes i fucking die while i'm driving he feels that anger too but it's like trying to cause you something derogatory sexually yeah like all that stuff comes out so maybe in those Drag situations, your mother into it maybe in those situations i can find out how ridiculous it is uh, uh, like de-stress in that situation because there's really nothing I can do allow someone to cut me off and realize that it's not the biggest deal now I'm one car behind I'll still get to where I need to go maybe one car short of where I was you know and, uh, and, and just kind of roll with it like literally roll with it but, but also so I do that on the subway too and all the times where it's crazy and everyone's nuts and people are screaming you know, there are certain situations where it's impossible to, to let yourself go and to let yourself feel you know totally at ease but I think it's a practice that I, I try and i and i in new york um on the subway when things break down when there's no air conditioning sick passenger it's like what the sick the a sick day. passenger yeah, yeah yeah well okay so we're all skeptical god damn it who's the sick passenger <laughs> but you know what maybe someone is actually sick and there have been times where i've been on the train and i felt like i was going to pass out and i've been re- and I, I didn't stop the car for it but man You know what that feels like. You know, I guess you were talking earlier about empathy and it's that same kind of thing. It's just sort of understanding that everyone has their opinions, everyone has their, they're all coming from some other place. You don't know what's going on in their head. You don't know what's going on in their life. And here we all are stuck on the subway car together that's not moving just kind of, like, understand that everyone has a story and everyone's coming from somewhere, and when they're really aggressive and, like, spitting on you, that's, you you can speak up and you can say, you know, dude, don't spit on me, it's disgusting, but, but in other times, like, just understand that, like, we're all trying to do the best, or maybe we're not all trying to do the best, but I'm trying to do the best, and, and, and if I can be, like, empathetic, if I can try to understand that there are other stories out there besides mine, and, and, you know maybe someone's coming from a difficult discussion. Maybe someone broke up with someone, maybe some, and I'm not the most, I I am a cynical person and I do, there is like a darkness to my sense of humor, but there's also like this weird hope to it. And there's also this like desire to just kind of understand and this desire to be open to like other people's experiences and be empathetic. Um, and I think that that's sort of what calms me in this craziness of this city that we live in. Um, Like I said, I choose to be here, so I have to deal with all the things that are coming at me. And sometimes it's so much more difficult than others, but in the times where I can kind of lighten up, in the times where I can stop gripping the steering wheel so tightly, then then I'm going to try to practice that, you know? Um, and, and, And it also informs me because then... I might see something that I otherwise would have been closed off to. And I love stories, and I love experiences, and I love, like I said, observing people. So when I can free myself of that kind of anger and frustration, I can watch other people and see how they deal with it, whether it's in a positive way or a negative way or just a a nothing way. I love just seeing how the, the dynamics between people are not communicating or trying to communicate and all that. It makes me more observant, and it makes me all... A little bit more part of my environment, and I find that that can be kind of a, a soothing, a more soothing place, right? Yeah, I feel like we we get
0: so emotionally attached to outcomes, you know. Mm -hmm. I so similar thing happened to me. Like I was at the bank, and this guy comes up, you know. He and this happens quite often in New York. He doesn't get behind me. He goes next to me. Yeah, I'm like, (laughs) he's gonna jump. He's gonna jump. Right, and so the ne- tellers his next, and he goes right in front of me, and then he does like the, the one eighty over his shoulder, like, "Is this? Yeah, I, I cut you." Yeah, like, so, <laughs> yeah, so I have the impulse to just to grab him by the neck, yeah. but then I was like, "Okay, who? Oh well, you know what? It, it this happened, okay, this happened, and okay, and then I'm not gonna, I'm gonna choose to
2: go on a different path, right? Like, and for right. what it's worth." Uh, Which is maybe not much you're telling me about this now Which if you didn't have that experience you wouldn't be talking about it now in in a good bad way Whatever, but it like it creates a story right if you just went to the bank and you went to the teller like you do It's just another thing you do, but when when there's like a dynamic that happens, I don't know maybe it influences something else and as a as a creative person like maybe it, it Manifests itself into like a story you're gonna tell or a play you're gonna write you know what I mean, right? Exactly, it's 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 a different shade of something And and your choice in that situation was to react a certain way. Well, I guess the traditional trajectory is the outcome
0: is I'm going to go and deposit this check or or whatever it is I need to do like in front of the teller. I need to do that. And, of course, if other things, you know, the pen doesn't work or somebody cuts me in line, wait a minute. I didn't sign up for this. Fuck this. I'm going to turn into the Hulk. Right. You could. But, I mean, that... I, I'm not suggesting this for anybody else, but for me, that's weakness for me. I'm like, that means you're just, it's so easy to push that button of like going, like giving into your emotion or right. whatever it is, you know, fear or anger right. or, and we're, I, I like to think I'm more evolved than that,
2: you know? Um, I think it's just too easy to do that. Yeah. and it, And that's where your instinct often goes. And it's sometimes nice to, for me, to step back a little bit and say, okay, why is my instinct going there? And wouldn't it just be as more powerful to kind of just let it happen, you know? Not not to be trod upon, not to go through life and just have everyone cutting you in line and stuff. But what it also does is it opens up something. So now you, so he does his thing, he leaves, now you get to the teller. And the teller may have seen this. And you can roll your eyes at the teller or she can, or he can say something back to you. And there's like, now there's a different dynamic you have with that other person behind that glass, right? Which maybe you wouldn't have had before right. if you just went, and I, heated. heated. but there's just something interesting to me in that, that it opened up a new relationship because you both observe this, you know, negative behavior. And now you have something in common that you may not have had in common if you just went up before that and handed them your, your check stubs or whatever. You right. know what I'm saying? Right. And that's where I find the interest is, like, reacting to something in a way that you react to it. And then what's, like, the follow-up to that? All of a sudden there's a new opportunity or there's a new person you're connecting with. Or, you know, when that guy cut you in line and you you look at the person behind you and now you're sharing something an experience <laughs> with them and there's something there. You know, in my romantic mind, it's like, then you meet someone and then you, you know, and then all of a sudden, for whatever that's worth, like, there's a different relationship and maybe you guys... You know, or become best friends. Maybe you never see them again. Anything in between, but now there is like you forged a different relationship with someone else. And I just think that that's that's the more interesting thing to me is is like that it that it opens up other doors that that were not there had you just gone about your normal routine or had you been angry and screamed at this person. You know. So what do you? So you know, being in the uh, in the acting world,
0: you do come across people that um, that don't have that positive outlook, right? Yeah. So you have people who are just. You know all about their career or kind of like oh sorry can you plug that in plug in it plug me in what, nope oh. so there's that cord right there sorry <laughs>
2: well, hour of what we said exactly. yeah no no, 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 no,
0: no. <laughs> it was i was just i just realized i was unplugged and then the battery said like um so how do you deal with that how do you deal with that kind of like energy that like cloudy energy of that i, I mean i just use actors and uh, as an example, but it really could be anybody.
2: Yeah. It's it's difficult. And like I said, it's it's among the things that the city throws at you, among the negative things that the city throws is people behaving in that way. Um, I when I when I am successful, which is not always in not distancing myself from it, but No no, know, no I'm sorry, just to clarify, I don't mean necessarily, necessarily strangers. Right. I, I mean people that you that, that I work th- with that th- I'm
0: that you may you may know that you I mean I guess do you feel like a, do you feel responsibility to say, to have this kind of conversation or are you, are you of the opinion of, you know what, I'm not, I'm not responsible for anybody in this world.
2: Well, I'm definitely not responsible. Uh, I definitely wouldn't, uh, you know, have the conversation if it wasn't a conversation. I wouldn't like give them my opinion if hey, they Bill, were. Hey, yeah, things that hey, are wrong. I, right. <laughs> I see you doing things and I don't think they're good. So here's what you need to start doing. No, I, I also like the The word "should" for me is a weird thing when people say like you should do this or you should do this. that. That makes me not want to do it like that. So I would never tell someone. I, I dated who, a girl once and she <laughs> she
0: used that a lot. Yeah, she's like, "Hey, you know what your problem is? Yeah.
2: Oh, I. Uh. Where do we begin? <laughs> yeah, please tell me. My problem is I know what a lot of my problems is and I just don't know what to do about them. Um. So I. So I. I have an aversion to that word "should" or telling someone what they should do. Um in those situations, if there was a conversation to be had, if there was a behavior, I would never, you know, give my opinion unless it was part of a bigger conversation that we were actually having. And they said, well, what do you think about this? Or, um, it doesn't mean I don't have a strong opinions about things. I observe it. I'm a, like I said, I'm a big observer. So, and, and I, and I sort of reflect in myself, like, well, is that how I want to be perceived? I'm perceiving this person a certain way because of their behavior. Is that how I want to, is that what I want to project? If it is not, then I would, I would choose to behave differently if I was faced with that kind of situation. It's hard. It's, and everyone's like varying degrees. Like some days were on, some days were not. Some days were like half on, some days were half off. You know what I mean? So the dynamic of every conversation and the dynamic of every interaction is based on so many different factors at that specific time. Right? So I don't know. I, I, I guess, it's 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 a gen I guess it's a general kind of question that you ask how would I how would I react to people in my life that are behaving that way, um, I don't know sometimes I would choose to not be around them yeah. sometimes well, that was the, yeah that yeah that's kind of the way I was getting at I mean sometimes if if I was constantly being bombarded with like that kind of negativity by someone who is regularly in my life I would maybe extricate myself from that situation I would maybe not want to be with that person as often. Uh, like I said, I would never impose my opinion unless it was part of a bigger conversation. I would never say, you should be this way or you should stop acting that way. Um, but if I was around that too much, yeah, I would think my choice in that situation was to say, you know what? I don't want to be around this negativity anymore. So maybe I'm going to hang out with the people who make me feel good, you know? Or who I feel good about hanging, hanging with. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of like... Examples of of people in my life that are like that. Well, I just kind
0: of pop like the, the actor thing was the first like the, kind of like a like a default for me. Like I I, I used to be around like a lot of actors who would kind of mope about their career. Yeah, and um, I I I wasn't equipped with kind of the um, my like the self excavation <laughs> that I have now, where I could just like yeah. I don't want to deal with this. I I kind of really had the, oh, let me please tell me more, and because essentially I don't, I don't. Number one, I don't care. Number two, you're very toxic, and it's really not anything to do with me. Right. You're just, you just want to, you just want an audience, and I don't really want anything to do with that. Right. So
2: now you have the ability to take yourself out of that situation. Well,
0: um, I guess like for me now, I kind of like I said so I do remind myself. There's one of the big biggest lessons I learned in my life was that I'm not responsible for anybody. And that's not I guess from some people may say like oh oh that that's so callous. That's empowering, right? I'm not responsible for you. You go live your life and I want you to have free will. Right. Um, but that was it took me a long time to learn that because I I felt like in order for people to like me, I needed to take care of them. Sure. And when I learned that I wasn't responsible for anybody, and I empowered them, but that in turn empowered me. So now, whenever that kind of like that kind of rears its ugly head, I just kind of do a sidestep and say, "All right, well, this probably isn't
2: something I want to yeah. uh, invest a lot of time in right now." Or yeah, and that is empowering, definitely. And in most situations, I would say I'm able to do that as well, or or like get a perspective on it that that it's not my problem that's being you know. Uh, and in some cases, I still have a hard time doing that. I still have a hard time, you know, taking myself out of those situations. I don't know why. I think it's that need to be an ear, that need to be empathetic, that need to be um, sort of liked or respected or, or, oh, no, he's someone who listens, he's someone who cares. And sometimes you, you can't be that for everyone, right? And and sometimes... It's very hard to resist,
0: right, that kind of, um, you know, oh, thank you so much, Matt. I mean, that's why we became performers, right? In <laughs> essentially, in, in yeah. <laughs> the emotional core of it yeah thank you yeah thank you i mean that 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 jolt um and i think if you can learn to kind of move away from that Mm -hmm. um you you become you can focus on other things and essentially your art becomes a little more
2: refined absolutely um i guess it's it's Finding, so we were talking about empathy, so I'm going to bring that up again. Like, finding when it's, you should be empathetic always, right, ideally. But in those situations, you don't always need to be the person that, that has to be understanding, that has to be listening, or that has to be, kind of have all the, that bullshit thrown Right, apart. I think that's
0: when it teeters toward feeding your own ego. Yeah. Right, of like, if you're, because it's not empathy anymore, it's, I just want to feel good about myself. Right. I'm doing the right thing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. No, it, it is. It's a fine. It can be a fine line sometimes. Um, but yeah. No, it's definitely empowering to say like, I don't need to <laughs> feel that way about myself. Right, like, like, I'm okay. You're just I'm like fine.
0: You're in a bad, you're in a, like a real, like unhealthy place and you're not, ne- you're, you're being negative and I, I choose not to be around you anymore. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of, for me, that was just like, it, there was another voice in my head. It was like, how dare you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 hard. It's it's and when you're, I bring it back to New York. When you're in New York and you're always surrounded by so many people all the time. I guess differently from LA, where like you might be isolated a lot more. Like that's what people I know who live there drive. They say New York, it's like everything's on top of itself. Whereas in LA, there's like so much more space, right? Right. Um, so the fact that not even people you know, but this dynamic of like people and behavior and and attitude is always present you go downstairs today walk on the street and there are people you're you're walking at someone or you have to do that silly dance walking around them and there's some kind of dynamic there and then you walk down the subway steps and someone is screaming at someone else who's beaming happiness <laughs> right and then you get on the subway and the car breaks in and everyone is pissed off and hot so you're you're just always surrounded by that energy whether it's positive negative everything in between um and it's like navigating your own way and saying like well how you know, for the, the personal standpoint, like, what, what can I get out of this that, that actually makes me feel okay versus, like, all this stuff that I need to get away from? It's, it's just this constant balance of, like, navigating your way in this society where everyone's on top of you at all times. Um, and it could be interesting. It, it's... and within that, it's also, like, the biggest cliche, but it's the loneliest place in the world because a lot of the stuff you're doing and navigating your way through, you're doing on your own, right? And you're not you're not communicating with other people, and you're on a subway with a million other people, and you're not making eye contact, and you're not having a conversation. You're just have your earbuds on, and you're doing it by yourself. And that too is an interesting dynamic.
0: Well, I mean, if you were like if you were super popular and had tons of money, and you had like I, I, you know when I think I think about like the the children of famous celebrities, mm-hmm. how they don't have to work, and they have all these famous friends, and just extremely wealthy and they don't have to do their own laundry <laughs> right. um, I mean as a kid I was like oh I want that life but where's the growth in that Now I remember going to college and I had to show this kid how to do his laundry <laughs> I, I, I didn't think anything of it like you know whatever but he was just like yeah fuck this I'm not doing it and so he like he like dro- had a drop off service yeah you're 18 years old. Yeah, no, I, I don't
2: know anything about that. I'm 40, and I won't drop my laundry. Off, I still spend the two hours in the laundromat. Um, yeah, I, I, I lost my train, but like, also what I find this is a kind of tying it back into what we were talking about, um, like the, those mundane experiences of being in a laundromat and. To me, they're so, I, I find some of the coolest dynamics between human beings at those times. I'll, I'll tell you like a quick story that kind of illustrates that. So, you know, I'm living my life, I'm kind of in my own head all the time and I'm navigating my way and it's just another day, I have to do laundry, so I kind of set aside two hours to do it. And I go to the laundromat and I put my headphones in and I put this stuff in and that's it. I'm in my own world, I'm looking at my phone, I'm the things are spinning, I have 26 minutes left, nothing happening. And then this guy comes in. Uh, he's probably in his 60s or 70s, and I kind of, like, look up at him like he's a weird dude, okay, another strange guy in Queens at a laundromat, and he goes over to the, the uh, dryers, and he takes out, like, these two giant comforters that have obviously been in there for hours, right, these big fluffy comforters, okay, so I'm just observing his behavior and just kind of still in my own world, and then he starts walking towards the door. He, like, stuffs him into a bag, and I'm just sitting there right by the door, and he kind of taps me on the leg this weird dude talking to me and he's like hey I, I, I wrote this all down so it's I don't remember the details of his name but say like he's like hey my na- I'm Joe it's like o- okay hey Joe He's like, what's your name do I have to tell him my name I don't know I'm Matt hey, Do you, you get the sense that he was f- disarming he was confrontational he wasn't confrontational at all I got the sense that and this is maybe as the conversation went on I got even more of this sense that maybe he was a little bit lonely right and here I am feeling lonely in my own <laughs> person and here's this guy who's like he's connecting with me and I'm resistant to it but maybe if I like slowly recalibrate and let him in a little bit or let myself out a little bit maybe there's something there I have no idea so I kind of like make eye contact with him hey hey Joe he asked my name I'm Matt I didn't really want to tell him he says yeah so uh, and he just starts telling me stuff he says so you know, I do my, this is my, these are my daughter's, he's real queens, you know, this is my, <laughs> these are my daughter's comforters. I said, oh, okay. Yeah, you know, I, I used to do her laundry. Now, I, I mean, you know, like, like growing up, I used to clean her, her clothes and stuff. Now, I'm now I'm, you know, I'm free during the day because I'm retired. So I'm doing her, I'm like, okay. Yeah, she gives me a little bit of an allowance. I used to give her an allowance. Now she's giving me an allowance so I can kind of get her. I said, okay. And now this guy's just like sharing random stuff with me. And he starts talking about like people he starts. he brings up that he's like yeah because you know i was in vietnam Uh, okay why are you telling me you're in vietnam he starts sharing the story about me uh, sharing a story with me about when he was in vietnam and he said then it's all of a sudden becoming this bigger conversation he's like you know and when you're in the military you're always looking out for your brother right because you got the enemy so it's like you just like these are your guys you don't choose who they are but you know you're there for each other i'm like okay and now it's like in my head, I'm like, this is, like, a scene in a movie where, like, the protagonist, who's me, is opening his mind to this conversation that was, like, mundane, but now it's becoming profound because he's telling me, like, I have to look out for other people and maybe in my own head, I'm not looking out for other people and maybe I need to open that up a little bit. And granted, he throws in some, like, racist things you know, <laughs> about the Vietnamese and everything. I'm like, all right, well, Joe, you know, he's salt of the earth. I'm so it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it. But it colors his character, right? And then he kind of, like... He just keeps going. He's like, "Yeah, you know, so I see a guy in the street and he's down, you know. I'm going to I'm going to try to pick him up. I mean, I can't offer him a lot, but I'm going to give him something I'm like, "Oh, thanks, Joe." Okay, cool, Joe." And then he's it's just like he's just letting me in on this like his mindset about helping people for no reason. I'm just sitting there waiting for my laundry to finish, and all of a sudden this guy just felt this need to connect with a dude who was sitting by the door for no other reason, and I was I wasn't receptive to it, and now all of a sudden I'm opening myself up a little bit and maybe offering a little bit of information here, a little bit more there. Um, Finally, like, after this weird conversation, which he was pretty much directing, um, he's just like, yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's good good to talk to you, Matt. I'm like, good to talk to you too, Joe. And he, like, he kind of slaps me on the foot. I'm sitting with my legs crossed, and I'm wearing a pair of sneakers that I bought, like, three years ago. And there were a pair of sneakers that, like, I didn't know that I liked when I bought them. But I was like, ah, they're okay. So I didn't wear them as often. And Joe's like, I like your sneakers, Matt. I'm like, thanks, Joe. And it was just a weird thing that, like, I don't know if I like the sneakers, but Joe likes them. I and that kind of justifies Were they still it. new? Is that why? But, no, I had worn them a number of times. But it was, I was just, I'm was just never sure about these sneakers. I'm never sure how. And I wear them because they're functional. But at the same time, I'm like, ah. Uh. Are kangaroos? <laughs> yes, they're kangaroos. They have a the zipper. No, they're <laughs> like a pair of Nikes. But they're just. I still have them to this day. It's Just one of those things that, like, you bought and you're like, eh. But Joe liked them that day, and that kind of justified, oh, cool. Like, something good came about me wearing these sneakers today. Not that I needed his approval, but I just, it makes me feel good about them today, right? And he kind of, he's like, yeah, so I'll, I'll see you around, Matt. And that's just a phrase that we say and I don't know if I ever will see him I don't think I've ever seen him since that day you know 7 not even it was probably 4 years ago Wow But there's a weird but but he's like stuck in my mind because I love connections that we withhold or that we partake in, right, and that was a connection that I just didn't even want to be a part of, but he kind of, in a way, forced it upon me, and maybe I opened myself up to it a little bit, it was just a guy talking to me in a laundromat on a rainy whatever, and... I don't know. I'm talking about this story four years later because it was just a connection that I would have otherwise closed myself off to. And at that point, I was aware of like, maybe just open yourself up a little bit. Maybe just take part in this conversation a little bit because it's better than closing yourself off because that's what you always do, right? And the fact that… So that… And I've had so many of these like weird just mundane New York interactions with people when I do allow myself a little bit of an opening where if someone approaches me and granted, I'm a I'm a white male of a certain age so I don't have to worry about certain things that other people do so I, I can you know I, I don't have to worry about walking down the street and being a, I do have to worry about being attacked but you know in a different way than a woman might or that you know so I'm aware of like what comes with but it but I'm sure any- you know if like a guy with you know Bleeding from
0: his forehead yeah, that yeah. wants to talk to you. <laughs> yes, it's a little bit, It's a little <laughs> different
2: but I'm saying just kind of like allowing myself to maybe be a little bit more open to these connections with human beings in my Neighborhood or on the subway or in the city that I would otherwise be resistant to and what it's done For me in the last four years or in part of my life um, It's just made me aware of more made me like more interested in stories made me more interested in other people and t- going to an empathetic standpoint, it's like I don't know. Joe just was like maybe he was just lonely that day. I don't know. I don't know where he's coming. I know, but he just had a need to connect with me for no reason other than he wanted someone to talk to. And and I got a compliment on my sneakers, which was kind of cool. And I got a reaffirmation of like, well, when someone's down, help them up. You know, right. the brotherhood of the military in Vietnam. And it, well, no, it's just like if you see someone else struggling, maybe be aware of it. Maybe like. In, a, in whatever way you can help them up you know if it's with a gesture with, with a smile with whatever it is you know I'm not someone who readily gives my money to everyone who asks for it but just and that is is courage because
0: it is really hard to be vulnerable in New York I mean like you don't want to seem like a creep yeah right you yeah. don't want to be like you don't want to come up to a girl and say like that's a really nice dress right <laughs> whoa <laughs> you don't want to be like no there's think? a very <laughs> fine line
2: right. in, in that You know, and I I have conversations with female friends and with dates that I go on of, like, I do have this desire because of all this to connect with people or to like make eye contact or to smile or to just do anything to say, hey, I'm here, you're there, we had a moment that could have been totally fleeting, but I'm just recognizing that we both exist here. And I also have to be aware that like, you know what, maybe don't do that because maybe she's not asking for that or maybe this person needs to be left alone or maybe, you know what I mean? And where's that fine line between being open to communication, being open to connections with other people, and also not being a creep who's like, you know, forcing someone to react to you when they clearly just want to read their book on the subway. Right. You know what I mean? And that's a, that's a very fine balance. And I don't know where, so I I are on the side of caution and I keep myself cut off because I know that I, I. I don't think I'm a creep. I know I'm not a creep. And I don't want other people to think I'm a creep. Creeps usually don't ask themselves if they're creeps. <laughs> they don't have this in monolog going on. Like, but I do. And I, and I definitely pull myself back from a lot of those interactions because of these reasons. Also because of vulnerability. Also because you're susceptible to so many other things when you do that. But I have a desire to, right? So even when I do withhold, I, I have a desire to connect. And I go, so talking about these like movies that I'm drawn to these, it's all this kind of like minutiae, it's all these like interactions and these communications and these connections that we have that can be so mundane, but they're, but profound because it's just people like wanting to understand or wanting to explore something that's not them, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. So, so that, that, I think that desire for interaction and communication and connection um, influences the kind of things that I'm interested in. As far as movies go, as far as like art goes, as far as reading a book goes, um, because because that's what I'm around all the time. And that's the way that like my mind churns. So every once in a while, a dude will slap you on the leg, in a laundromat, and your first reaction is, "Who's this creep?" But then sometimes it's okay to open. It's okay for me to open myself up to it, and have a community and have a conversation with them. You know, um, because it, it four years later, I'm talking about it. You know, for nothing else. Awesome, man.
0: Well. Before we run out of time, yeah. uh, question I, I ask all of my guests: um, If you were could be in a, a time machine and go back to twenty-one-year-old version of you, you're to have a conversation with that per, that you know young, sprightful, uh <laughs> with my ears, Matt. Yeah,
2: what would you tell him? Well, first, to dry his ears because that's <laughs> not healthy in <and laughs> cold. Twenty-one-year-old um, me. Um, Well, it's too simple to say don't worry so much. Um, I feel like that's too generic a thing to say, but like maybe just try things that you're a little uncomfortable trying because, you know, take a step that maybe is not the most comfortable step to take. Uh, It'll it'll expand your view, you know, you'll be in a slightly different place than you were in and that comfortable place that you're always in is great, it's comfortable and it's also contains you. So maybe if you take a step out of it for a second and get a little bit of a different perspective, you'll see some other things that are that are out there that you weren't necessarily aware of and you're opening yourself to a different opportunity or a different experience. Uh, I was always and I still am a person who likes comfort, likes to know where I'm at, know where I'm going. But the reality of life is that you kind of don't always and until you kind of put yourself away, put, put yourself in some other situation. Um, You you, you don't have experiences or you won't open yourself up to new experiences or meet new people or be in a different place. So that's what I would say. I would say just like take a step in a direction that you're not so sure of and Mm. and trust that everything that brought you to that step has made you okay to take it, (laughs) something like that.
0: Cool. Oh, and and one final other question. So right now, so now we're going to go back in the time machine. We're going to go back to, to September 2016. So, what is happiness to you now?
2: Uh, happiness to me—that's a loaded question. I'm still trying to figure that out. You know, uh, every every day, I think it's it's like it's doing kind of what I was just saying. It's it's, it's and and feeling some kind of um, fulfillment from that. So it's it's because I'm not someone who's going to take a huge leap, or or I'm so hesitant to take those huge leaps, if I allow myself to take a little step, and then maybe get something back from it, or get a little pat on the back, or get a little sense of fulfillment for myself, or not asking for approval, but just like, hey, you're okay here too. You were okay there, and, and maybe a little bit stuck, and you take that step and you're okay now. It's not necessarily happiness that I feel, but it's a sense that like, by continuing to move, I'm opening myself up to new experiences and I think that that to me is is if not happiness it's it's on the road toward some kind of fulfillment not fulfillment in the grandi, grandiose sense because I don't know what that is but it's progress to me can lead to the next little bit of happiness that I can feel so by taking a little bit of a step that might be a little I'm a nervous I'm a little bit nervous to take can potentially the lead reward
0: to of from actual work
2: yeah well yeah yeah do, like, I I can trust that, like I said, I can trust that everything I've done to this point has led me here, so just loosen the reins a little bit and, and allow yourself out a little bit more than you're comfortable with and trust that that foundation you have, you're going to be okay. And if it's not right, you can turn your head and look a different way and that's okay too. It's like giving myself sort of that, that not pass, but that... that um, security that like you'll be okay you'll be okay just kind of keep going just give yourself a little nudge and keep going so once again i said it's not necessarily happiness because i don't i'm always searching for that but it's it's a sense of like of content (laughs) a sense of feeling like be a little bit riskier than you're used to being and 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 trust that you're going to be okay cool man you're going to be
0: okay (laughs) thank you thank you i think we're all going to be okay uh
2: uh, Matt, what's the website where people, can people find you? Uh, my sort of makeshift website until I put more time into a better one is uh, bigbaseballhead.wordpress.com. B I G. And if you've
0: listened up to this point, you'll know you obviously know what that means. Yeah,
2: bigbaseballhead.wordpress.com.
0: Awesome, uh, Matt. Thank you so much for doing this. This, yeah. is, this is a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, it's always cool to talk and to <laughs> share conversation.
0: Uh, sweet listeners, thanks for sticking around. Like I always say, you're a part of this conversation. You're just on the quiet side. Uh, Bodhisattva, go out and do good in the world. Thanks, guys.
2: Boys, welcome to the Trump Dome. Uh, this is just your office. it, Johnny touchdown. Ready? Gentlemen, you're about to lose to the smartest, Ten. most classy, Link. highest quality, handsomest DSRL champions ever. In fact, soon the Trump organization will acquire the manning name and turn it into a luxury. Gun. You're fired.
0: You're fired. My suit. You're a dashing man. I know it. Yeah!